Hello everybody on Education Monsters. Today we have a surprise guest because we have not spoken previously before. I found him on Facebook Marketplace and today we're welcoming Mark. Hi. Hi, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for this spontaneous invitation. I think this is very funny how life works out, but I'll ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Mark Bureau. I'm an ex-studio uh, owner, recording studio, music studio. And uh, I went over to buy a microphone uh, on Marketplace. And this is how I met Aurélie. And uh, we quickly uh, realized that it would be maybe a good uh, podcast to, to have. And so here I am. I'm 46 year old uh, and I had a recording studio close to the year 2000. And it was uh, mainly aimed at the uh, English music, English musicians in Quebec. And so there was no grants and uh, it was all, uh, all passion. And that, that, that's, that's pretty much it. It was on the uh, Plaza Saint-Hubert, which is a commercial strip. Uh, it's kind of a freaky spot, but it was good because there was nobody there at night and we could do uh, noise and sound and loud music all we wanted. And that's cool. But did you have a background in music or did someone in your family inspire you from a young age to head in that direction and take the risk? Uh, no, I'm, I, I started listening to music pretty young and my father has Acufen, so he despises music. And so wait, whole... what's that word again? Acufen is when your ears ring permanently. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I couldn't listen to music while he was at home. Like it would just drive him crazy. And, and it, 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 I don't know if it hurried my, uh, my will to, to, to leave the house and, and actually go out and do this. It was definitely not from the family that I got the love of music. I think it was more from hanging out with friends and going to rave parties. And then I was throwing rave parties. And then I realized, well, I'm not going to be raving my whole life. I'm going to be going out all night, getting into these crazy parties all the time. And, and also the rave scene was becoming a little more aggressive with the Hells Angels. And so uh, every party that I would throw, they, I'd, I'd get calls from these guys. They wanted to do uh, the security for my party. And I didn't trust them, obviously. And it just it just got a little crazy. So I, I went to recording school. Wait, wait, wait. So how do you throw a rave party? Do you have to tell the city first? Uh, no, we would have a hotline. So uh, <laughs> you'd have a hotline and you would call to get the address 24 hours in advance. So I did four events like that. And then the fifth event, I actually broadcasted it. And yes, I told the city and I told the cops. And I was I was the first one to book La Place des Arts to do a rave. What year was this? This is like... 93, 94, 90, 95, 90, yeah, around there. Yeah, I was uh, I was 17 at the time and I went out and booked the Place des Arts to do a rave party. And we must have had like 5,000 people at the event. So it was it was quite a success. At 17, how do you know 5,000 people? Uh, you don't, you don't. You, it, <laughs> there was a network and uh, we kind of tapped into the network. We passed out the flyers at the nightclubs and at the raves and, you know, we announced the the this party and and also we had a bit of uh, a reputation because we had thrown uh, a little parties uh, prior to this uh, large event and so it, it, it was a bit of a build-up we did another party after that one and uh, that's where re we really got the, the the wrath of of what was going on with the hell's angels and in, in the rave scene it was it was a peaceful movement it was really a beautiful 
weekend event and, and, and there was something mysterious about every event and so on. And the Hells Angels stepped in and the drugs got cheap and low quality and, uh, you know, people started coming for the wrong reasons. And so from there, the rave scene sort of died and it turned into more uh, after hours clubs. So a permanent venue for these dance events. Okay. So for international listeners, could you please... Um... Talk to us more about the Hells Angels and who they are. The Hells Angels, well, they're an international organization and they're in into drug distribution, resell, I guess. They're, uh, they're into prostitution and uh, collecting money and uh, protection for weird, uh, dark realms, let's just say. So how did you first got into contact with them? Well, they got into contact with me because they wanted to do my security. And then you'd realize also at the door that, you know, you'd have to let in some shady people in your party. And so at that point, you kind of close your eyes on what's going on there. Um, but that didn't inspire me to keep going in the rave. So I went to record to, to learn recording at uh, Music Technique. So because you did not want other people to mingle with your own way of doing things, you wanted to have full control, therefore study. No, it's, it's not a control thing. It's that there was a peaceful party happening and all of a sudden things were getting out of hand. Things were, were becoming a little dirtier. Oh, I thought you said no to them. I, I did, yeah, but but you can't really, like, this. the whole scene was becoming darkened by their presence, right? And so the scene pretty much disappeared. People didn't want to do parties anymore. The, the venues were harder to access. Uh, security was becoming dodgy. And then the after-hours permanent clubs started opening. So there was less room for the pop-up rave. Right? Okay, I see. Have you ever been to a rave? You ever been to one of these things? I've been to one, but it was a while ago, and it was in France. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No raves in Canada, but I heard crazy stories of how you have to get invited by friends of friends of friends of friends, and obviously it would never be out in public. And I also heard crazy stories of how some people also get invited in raves in the sewers. So you really have to know like some tunnels and have to know the map. <laughs> yeah, I've been to some that, crazy parties like that. Yeah, yeah. If But, you can tell me more about it, I'd love to know. Well, people... in the beginning, it, in the beginning, it was more like that. In the beginning, you would get a flyer from somebody you knew, or you you would get the phone number to the hotline from somebody you knew, and there was a lot of drag queens, and there was a lot of uh, you know people dressed up, and it got it was really 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 funky, and and then the more it got popular, all the way to this whole hell's angels story the look and feel of the the decor wasn't important anymore or it became too pop tons of lighting and you know i guess i'm responsible also for for turning it pop a little bit at least in montreal by going out and getting the Palais des Congrès. So we're going from a, an underground movement, you know, the electronic dance music, I guess, uh, would have started maybe in New York and stuff like that with the gay scene, right? And then all of a sudden it becomes pop. And now if you look at it, what it is today, well, you're seeing dance music in videos and it's very poppy and Madonna brought it forward and made it even poppier at one point. And she was hanging out with the Junior Vasquez that used to DJ at the, the, the New York nightclubs. And so, you know, it went from this super deep, groovy, draggy, everybody's all dressed up, everybody's pizzazz, you had to know who's who to get into now these uh, massive parties in Europe, you know, these these like uh, 100,000 person parties that are just massive commercial events, right? 
So there's the evolution of the dance party. But also, if you consider talking about a rave from the 90s and a rave from now, how did you see the evolution of that throughout the years? Um, well, I saw the very last of this, the super underground parties. I, I missed the super rootsy beginnings. Uh, I didn't get to see those. And, and, and it was really interesting. It was really fun. It was, you know, it was full of attitude, but it was full of love at the same time. Whereas in the 90s, when I stopped doing them, I guess, 96, 97, everybody was very independent from each other. You know, you'd, you'd have crews of people that would hang out, but people were a little more distant it was not as uh, as together of a scene i'd say could it be that people started getting into bigger circles you know back then when you didn't have social media like you said people got invited through flyers you have to know people mm -hmm. and usually the demographic is pretty similar so i'd say your friends from the same group of high school or college might be there and now that you have invitation through the internet now it's more likely that you don't know these people Yeah, I think that I think that, that 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 could be a great deal of it. There's also the sheer size of the events. If you have a small like 1,200 person party, you'll get a certain flavor. And all of a sudden, if you ramp that up to 4,000 people, then all of a sudden you're getting, I'm sorry to say, a less educated crowd, right? So they're not showing up with the same pizzazz and the same attitude, and and they might not be taken under somebody's wing. Also, there you could be intimidated. You could be younger and less in vogue, or you could be I don't know, maybe uh, not gay or not uh, drag. You know, like it, there's there's just something got diluted at one point from the original essence of the warehouse party. The warehouse party sort of turned into a rave, then turned into after hours, and then now it's the festival. I guess that's that's ruling this electronic dance scene. Mm -hmm. Do you miss those days? Uh, I'm not a nostalgic person, really, but uh, <laughs> if I could start it all over, it would be uh, I wouldn't change that much, let's say. Yeah. What about the drug scene? Did it change much from when you started? Um, yeah, the drugs got really low quality. You know, the drugs were really good. And then you, sh you started seeing an influx of, of a variety of uh, the ecstasy or the, uh, the E or whatnot. And um, it, it became a little more speed induced and it was it was dirtier. So the, the love probably also disappeared a bit from the, the lack of quality from ecstasy. But it came back, actually. You know, it's, it, there's good ecstasy out there. <laughs> But could it be that your body build the resilience throughout the years that you obviously don't react the same as the first time because it's like your first time having sex you know it's always magical because you're discovering not because it's good in itself but because it's new same with the drugs you might want to try something new or you might try it in a different context or with different people that have a different take on it or whatnot but i don't think i've done enough to say that i'm immune and and and, and that i i don't I don't feel it anymore. Contrary, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it'll hit you like a brick if you're 46 and you've done a lot. You know, <laughs> um, Eyes, are you listening? My daughter is actually not too far. I hope she's got some headphones on. Eyes, did you Are you listening to this podcast? I don't know because I'm talking about drugs and all. Do you want to meet Aurélie? Come. Hey, very nice meeting you. I hope you're liking the microphone. I went to buy the microphone from uh, Aurélie. And uh, she asked me to be on this podcast. Cool. Yeah. You enjoying it? Yeah. Cool. Well, I think it's also important to include that in education. So if you want your daughter to have some yeah, sort of exposure. I don't, I don't have an issue with that. 
it's absolutely the smart thing to do because you cannot avoid them coming out of their bubble. And at some point being a teenager, you will have the option. You will be given maybe a few pills here and there, and then you have to be smart about it. Not overdose, not do anything bad. So the best thing you can do is stop having a taboo on it. Yeah, absolutely. How did you approach this with your kid? Um, well, she's 10, right? So uh, it's it's very uh, tits and bits here and there. You know, you see somebody in the street like, I think that person's a little high. Well, you know, like, look at the symptoms. Yeah, I think, well, that could be alcohol. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you see somebody on TV or whatnot or uh, what drugs does. We're just starting to touch on all that. The education is just beginning. Just beginning. I think it could come from the recent legalization of marijuana. I mean, it's not the case at all in France. It's still Mm -hmm. legal. And you see lots of advertisement, campaign from the government. Like They're like the fucking worst. It's like you would see a student being drowned in like a huge smoke. And all of a sudden... (laughs) Yeah, like his school setting becomes like a hell and you're supposed to feel like you're being engulfed by evil. Meanwhile, the truth is, if you go out (laughs) on a Friday night and you have a little bit of a puff, you're just going to laugh at your friends. So you don't relate to this crappy advertisement. It makes no sense at all because it makes you feel like you're going to fail in school. You're going to become violent, which is the opposite. I mean, I'm not a consumer myself, but I've tried it enough to to be like. No, hey. you're not. You're not on a rampage. No. <laughs> no. So I think no, the education do. is terrible. They, they, the people that take care of these campaigns don't have any experience. Like, it's impossible that they have any experience with all this. But I think this Probably is what's important to have someone like you on the podcast to talk about those possible uh, polemic subject that it's not that yeah. good. And when you talked about rave, I mean, they could bring good memories if you educate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's talk about the dark side then. You know, like I've, I've seen people lose their mind, you know, like completely. Uh, I've seen people completely, completely lose it and not come back. You know, there, there is some people. Uh, yeah, n- not necessarily very close, close friends, but, you know, I started knowing a lot of people around the scene and you, you, you see who went deep and into the dark side. You know, you know who went there, you know, who's had health issues and you hear people dying, you know, like these things do happen. It's, 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 it is and, and should be a concern of obviously parents and society. And unfortunately, society is often directed by governments and governments want to handle this subject. They, they just don't have the right experience. It's all an experience thing. You know, if you've experienced all this, you might approach it with the proper message. You know, it's hard to design something for the mass because we're all different. Yeah. If you're designing it for the average citizen, obviously <laughs> there's, there's only hours in your day to teach your kids math, French, English, philosophy, whatever. But where do you put simple life skills if you're being faced with the choice of taking drugs? Because I do teach and a bunch of my students also have those um, health classes. And one of the lessons was about cigarettes, that it's making you highly addictive. You're going to die from lung cancer. Sure, that's accurate. But it demonizes it so much that I'm afraid that at 18, that poor child will just binge on it just because it was forbidden or like oh i'm gonna die anyways because i've been smoking for seven years so you know i might as well just keep going yeah so coming back to your friends who had that dark side do you think that it's because they had the dark side to begin with that they found an outlet 
which were drugs. Uh, yeah, were... I mean, for sure, for sure. I mean, some people need a lot of dopamine. And if you're not getting it from sports, you're getting it from that. Some people need uh, a lot of escape because they have regrets. Some people, they, they, they have something weird going on back home so they're they're trying to uh, evade that so you don't want to go back home so you go and party for three days on the weekend and when you do go back home then you just sleep and you avoid it all so yeah the, the outlet is definitely there for them definitely dangerous for them but there's hundreds and thousands of people in in a given party that are there that also need these same things but they know it's temporary and they go back to whatever is difficult and face it you know no exactly you could see a party as something like it could be the outlet because you had a difficult week and you can work hard study hard and party hard that's not an issue the the thing is we have different limits we have different boundaries of where your body can tolerate and then it becomes an addiction and even an addiction if it's temporary then sometimes it could also lead to crazy inspiration for music for poems for writing i'm just saying that we often see things black and white and it could be adjusted if we talked about it a lot more so the second you said rave i'm like wait i never had an episode on rave what could kids learn about it because mm -hmm. at yeah some point, yeah for sure well some people are are fundamentally broken Like, uh, and I'm not saying like broken, like you can't fix or broken, like it's physical. I'm saying like something broke uh, through their timeline. And how, how do you fix the timeline and, and give meaning to somebody? You know, I remember clearly some people like, oh, I just want to rave forever. And, and this is a great place to be. And, and wow. And look at all this love and look at, well, Yeah, it, it can show you a community and it can show you an outlet. Um, but unfortunately, you can't do that forever because it's extremely toxic. You know, you're not sleeping, you're, you're not in day to day society, you're not spending money, you're, you're, you're not energetic to go and work and study, but it does show you certain things. And for some, it put them on a decent path, you know. For me, it got me back in school. It got me to go and learn uh, recording music. I, I was fundamentally lost. I didn't want to follow the footsteps of what my parents were doing and working 60 hours uh, a week and, and driving downtown and back for two hours a day. Like, it that make no sense, you know? It made no sense to me. And my outlet was like, screw all that. I'm, I'm, I'd rather party forever. Then you realize, okay, you can't do that. So what am I going to do? Ended up hanging out in a studio for a few years instead of an office, you know? What did your parents do? My father was in sales his whole life. At the time when I left home, he was VP sales for a distributor for uh, air conditioning and heating. And he liked his job. He liked the people that he was with. I just didn't see that for myself necessarily uh, and my mom was uh, working for people that owned buildings and rented apartments uh, very high-end apartments and she was always in court dealing with these people because they you know they didn't want to pay or they didn't pay or they were uh, arguing about uh, certain repairs or whatnot and so you know the, the, the stress was definitely there at home and uh, the corporate world didn't interest me mm -hmm. sounds like both these jobs require you to be very down to earth which was not appealing to you i mean as most teenagers they want to explore how much they can be opposites of their parents especially mm -hmm. if you oh yeah for sure 
and I, I ended up, you know, I'm in sales right now. Um, you know, I've done it, <laughs> but right, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy path for me to, to do the sales gig, right? Like I, it's easy to talk about something and to organize a spreadsheet and to uh, put together a system for somebody that's, that's, that's really uh, relatively simple. I, I just wanted to go to, towards something that was more arts, more in the arts, basically. I just want to but- listen to music all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're doing in sales is kind of related to music, but when yeah. were you able to bridge that? So the recording studio, the money came from selling studio and uh, live audio and lighting equipment. So I financed the studio from that. And then I left that job and I did the studio full time for a while. Yeah. And when I closed the studio, I pretty much went back to that uh, same same job, um, just not in a store. I went back to do integration. So basically, integration is when you're also selling the services of putting everything together and making sure that all the wires and the network and the hanging and the, the proper pieces are talking to each other. And then that the, the, there's extra pieces to talk to those pieces so that you don't need to have a bunch of boxes to talk to. There's one box talking to all the boxes and you program that one box for it to, pro- to, to operate the rest of the system. So that's basically in- integration. The best example would be a, a museum. If When I leave a museum, it's fully automated and the person that is in charge of turning the system on in the morning and turning it off at night can do it with one button and, and all the different little exhibits all turn on and operate through a central brain. Do you have to use programming for this? There's less and less programming. There is some in some of the funkier exhibits, but it's mainly more parameters, right? So it's not true code, but we still call them programmers. I still uh, hire programmers, you know, to, to, to get these systems up and running. Yeah, it's becoming more and more user-friendly because when you think about all the smart homes, like even like light bulbs or the temperature of your fridge or when your alarm clock would put whatever news you want. I to agree whatever. with everything you've set up to date. But not this one. I think it's getting extremely complex. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Because there's... So when I started in the field and you wanted to operate sound, lights, and video, they were pretty much all separated. And you would send triggers, analog triggers, to each of the different things just to start little players and this and that. And it was very physical. You can almost touch everything that, that to have something happen. You know, you can pull out a cable, touch the two cables together. It created a short and that little device started. Now I'm dealing with fiber optics. I'm dealing with category five cable. Now there's category six, category six, A, B, C, category seven, category eight. And in fiber optics, there's multi-mode, there's a single mode. And then you're getting into audio, audio over networks, audio over fiber, via video, HDMI cable, you need extenders you know like it just doesn't stop the evolution in audio visuals is just crazy 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 do you see yourself like an artist almost because if someone comes to you with a project let's say i want this light at this time on this canva on a museum then you kind of have the power to choose just like a translator i mean when you're translating someone's idea into the world then you're sort of executing that. There's there's a bit of artistry, but I wouldn't call myself like a pure artist where I have the need to create. Like a, a real artist will smash their head against the wall when they can't get it and they want to create. You get writer's cramp and you're just mad at yourself, for instance. <laughs> 
you know, you want to write that song, but you, you, you have the hook, but you're missing the, the flavor or the, that, yeah, you, 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 you get mad inside me. I, I, don't, I don't care enough. You know, I don't have that fire, but there is a bit of artistry and I do accept a good challenge and I, and I do concentrate and go uh, well above to, to make sure the systems are nicely designed. And there is a part of artistry there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My best uh, systems were design builds where a client has a vision and I step in and I'm around a bunch of people in a boardroom and just like showering them with questions and making their lives hard with what their vision is and making sure that the system is streamlined, that there's no functions missing, that I have all the answers for, like I said, the hanging, the, the cabling, the and then there's a, a electrical requirements after that come and like, it needs to be thorough, but the artist artistry part of it is very short. It's uh, the rest is pretty technical. But would you have a different relationship to that part of the job if it were your company? Because now if you're working for someone else, you're kind of following the instruction. But if you had that freedom of having your name and you're accountable for every single cable or every single input, then you could make it more your um, Yeah, but, the, but the, 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 the true art in anything that's related to audio visuals will be the content, right? And you yeah. have to respect the content. And uh, it took me a while to really, really, really grasp this, but content is king. And it, it, it was probably much when I closed my studio where I really, 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 it really dawned on me that content is king. Like, it doesn't matter if you have a, a trillion dollar studio with beautiful plants everywhere and a fat coffee machine, like, fuck all that. It, like, if you come in to a studio that has like $10,000 worth of gear and you have a, an artist that just like bangs that piano with so much love and excitement and thought into what his art and vision is and the emotion that he wants to push out, then you are nothing beside that studio technician or the equipment that is there. Like you don't build a studio for the gear, you build it for the beauty that's recorded there, that's that's developed there, or that gets immortalized, right? It's very interesting what you said, because coming from a science background, I had to perform a lot of brain surgeries in mice and rats for seven to eight years in labs. And I've always been told you are only as good as your tools. That's why I quit at McGill, because it's impossible for us, a lab of 20 people to have one pair of forceps and it's always fucking broken. Then all, all your experiments are ruined because it's so precise. Everything, all the electrodes that goes into the brain, the virus you inject, you can be an amazing surgeon. And still fuck it up because your tools are fucking cheap. And that's what got me super mad. It's the funding. So I do agree with you that, yes, content is important. And maybe this $60 mic will be as good as this $100 mic. Sure, that won't be a big deal. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to maybe surgery and stuff, maybe that's a different approach. But I do find it interesting that that comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's uh, definitely a difference there for sure. But again, you know, Miles Davis lost his... uh, trumpet once and they gave him a little plastic trumpet you know or crappy trumpet and he he blew the audience away right like what he did what he what he pushed out of this thing still managed to to uh to move people right whereas when you're when you're using technical tools for a very specific need then yeah the tools become very 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 important but you know in music there's a lot of people that overproduce stuff they stay mm-hmm. too long in the studio and they, they they try to invite all these top 
players or these top engineers and these top studios and like it's just it's a hurdle it gets in the way of of letting go and just being and and, and and making music so how is it like being the owner of a studio is it that you're renting your studio with the equipment but did you have to babysit the people or was it mostly from passing um, all of that all of that i mean uh sometimes i would literally do karaoke to pay the rent like you know like the phone would ring ding, <laughs> hello yeah coming in yeah and then you realize that these people are dropping a karaoke track in your in your system and they're singing songs that you've heard before and you're just like oh my god where's my gun i'm gonna shoot myself <laughs> and then uh you would i i would produce uh bands as well on my own i had this artist triple seven he was a hip-hop artist uh, he goes now and under the name trips the dawn and triple seven came in and he wanted to record some vocals and i told him i said you, you need you need a hook you need this you're like you're so much better than the, the tracks that you're bringing in and he actually listened and he kept coming back and he kept listening to what i was saying and i said fuck okay i'm gonna invest in this guy and i we ended up doing like a full album and it was just it was just amazing This, this this rapper was just unbelievable but we're in montreal the mp3s are are all of a sudden all over napster has just taken over the world uh record companies don't know what to do with this musicians are buying their own stations left and right and it just became a shit show like it, it was the studio was becoming very very difficult i was doing lockouts i go to rent a studio to a band for a full month and i'd be like 10 12 hours six days a week with these guys just hanging out and getting embedded in what their their vibe is and churning out an album after a month and then um before i close the studio i would i would maybe hang out with an artist three days max people all had bought their stations they all thought they could record their own albums which a lot of them did but your unfair advantage in the story of having so much experience with recording is you could offer your advice so it's not just renting a studio it's renting your your brain yeah but then the advice came with the manufacturers of the equipment and the advice came with collaborations between musicians and the advice came so i had a difficulty reinventing myself when i closed the studio because the musicians were jumping into the recording game and the guy that was the recording engineer had a harder time jumping into the musicians game right if you're a musician jumping in the recording game it's a lot easier with the up and coming technology than it is for somebody who's got rent who's burnt out obviously a lot of studios burnt a lot of people out in those years because you know, you're basically your, your your values going down and you can't just reinvent yourself and say oh i'm going to become a musician you have overhead from your rent from the equipment that you have whereas the musicians are you know used to being struggling artists and manage to scrape a, a bit of money and get a station and all boom all of a sudden they're recording right yeah and a lot of the musicians i worked with just didn't make it either like I, I, some of them did I, i worked with patrick watson and he's huge just massive you know paul carnello did something recently uh band camaro mans they're they're not rolling they were a couple but uh not since she's working in the industry but other people just left and one one dude's out in toronto doing selling buildings you know like it but how could you have retained those clients um well recording studio retains clients but they also thrive on new clients right like you can't always keep all your clients that's just impossible you know no no business manages to retain all their clients so 
new clients were pretty much impossible at that point. You know, it was really, really difficult to get new clients. The recording studio industry had plateaued. Do you play an instrument yourself or do you sing? I do now. I play piano. I use simply piano and I went back to the roots and uh, I play like a child. And uh, <laughs> I, I kind of, it humbled me. Yeah, going back to work after the studio really, really was difficult. There was no way I could go and learn an instrument there. It was just, it was an échec, you know. But when you look back on it, it was a success. The whole thing was a success, you know. I mean, if you think about it, it's a bit of a loop that you're working in sales, could bring clients, feed your studio, go to parties. It's like you have both the consumer and the maker. Like It's like almost like a full circle, the way I'm seeing your story. The full circle is not there yet. <laughs> I don't think. What's missing? I, I don't think so. What's missing? Teaching, maybe. Yeah, I was offered a job recently. And maybe if we have another interview in a while, I'll let you know about that. I'm, I'm not comfortable talking. But I was offered something interesting that I might jump on to. And that's, that's, there's a full circle there, actually. There's something interesting that really ties it all in. That's like the, the nightlife, the electronic music, the studio, uh, I guess the sales, because it's uh, purchasing and sales. There's sort of a, a thing there. So there might be something that's even more full circle coming around. Yeah, we'll see what life uh, brings you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just curious, what's your worst client? My worst client is usually government. And government hiding behind a consultant with a project in mind that is not commercially viable. What do you mean? So if you're putting together something and you know that the success of it is just building it and there's there's no actual real worry about making it profitable. Then for it you or for them? For them. Then it's a shit show. Then it's a shit show. And I'm going down a deep, uh, dark hole now of, of trying to explain this. But um, <laughs> Okay, we've got time. <laughs> there was a project way, 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 way back in Three Rivers, okay? It was with Casiluc, and Casiluc is the construction branch of Loto Québec. Loto Québec, if they want to build something, they're going to mandate Casiluc to build it as a construction company. And you weren't allowed to have a casino in Three Rivers. It was against the law. Why? Oh, let's oh, not we go have, there. We have I, I don't in Montreal, so why couldn't they have? Yeah, one? but that okay, that took a while to get happening. Like they, they, there, there was a few hurdles, and they had to change some laws and this and that. But Three Rivers, you weren't allowed to have a casino. So Little Quebec decided to make a salon de jeu, <laughs> uh, a game salon. And so rightfully knowing that they would not make it a success and rightfully knowing that they wanted to turn it into a casino by not making it commercially viable. And so you don't know this at the time, but you're trying to make things work. And there's people that are trying to make things not work. And there's people that are mischievous in this whole thing. And so here you are trying to get these projects going and there's this shady stuff happening all over. And then obviously there's a consultant writing the tender and you have to follow his lead, but things don't necessarily jive or work properly. So that's, those are the worst comments. Do you mean on the ethical part? Or job-wise, like the actual work? I think it's a good mixture of both. You know, I, I like to consider myself an ethical and person of value, you know, like I have a person <laughs> with good values. Sorry, I do have value also, but sorry, I'm the same person with values. <laughs> and just seeing all the shit that goes on in the back of certain uh, contracts is just this crazy. It's just stupid. And there's only so much we can control. I mean, we can say yes or no to the thing, but at the end of the day, it kind of comes down to money because like you were saying, there's rent to be paid. 
there's mouth to feed and sometimes we have to make compromises. Yeah. 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 I can see, I can see how people dig themselves into a, a, a hole. And uh, I was just watching a sailing documentary about a guy that had a, a business and uh, to make his business promoted, he decided to sail around the world and then uh, alone on solo. And next thing you know, he goes out to sea and his brand new boat that his investors bought him didn't work well so he decided to lie so he stayed in the in the middle of the ocean without going around the world and faked his log books and he ended up committing suicide in the end crazy story <laughs> yeah and so i can see how you you money c'est pervers in english perversive perverse yeah pervert yeah, yeah. money, money can definitely turn you into a pervert yeah exactly <laughs> It's like raves, you know, there's always, there's always a dark side if we want to see it, but there's also a positive side if it's temporary. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, so far, what's your next step? Bought a sailboat. Really? Yeah. I want to go, uh, not that I want to go, I am going sailing uh, most of my summer. Where are you going? Um, so far, uh, well, the boat that I purchased is in Bidi Shalar and New Richmond. And I plan on sailing around uh, Gaspé, uh, around the uh, south shore into uh, Rimouski, the Bic, and then up the fjord, the Tadesac uh, fjord, so the fjord de, de Sagny, and then back up the north coast all the way to Meguin, maybe even around Nantikosti into Terre-Neuve. And then at that point, I might as well hit Ile de la Madeleine. And then uh, that'll be that. That's like a pretty solid two months of not sticking around anywhere too long. Mm -hmm. Sailboats are slow. And would that be by yourself? Partly with the family, uh, girlfriend and daughter, but they're not going to be there most of the time. Um, I have a friend also who uh, bought a boat uh, last summer, at the beginning of the summer. He's the one that inspired me to do the move. We, we did some sailing together last summer. So we'll be uh, following each other for uh, maybe four or five out of the eight weeks I'm planning on heading out. Yeah, I'm going to have some friends on board. I mean, I'm just waiting to see how the scheduling is going to happen and what's, what's going to happen. It's very exciting summer coming. There's Thank so you. many beautiful landscapes in Canada. Like people don't travel enough. And especially by boat, like people travel now with the most efficient way. With planes, I don't like layovers. So I always take the fastest route. And I think we've lost that mentality of going on a road trip and making the commute part of the traveling. Absolutely. The commute part of the travel. Yeah. I mean, like I told you what I'm planning on doing is a route. But honestly, I go south just as happy. Like it doesn't, it won't matter where I'm going, you know, follow the wind. And that's that. Yeah, that's a great mentality. Yeah. Well, Mark, do you have a last piece of advice for listeners before we close the episode? Yeah, get a mentor for whatever you do call in on people don't think that don't think you can do it yourself believe in in the older uh, generations that have experience is it because it's something you wish you had gotten a mentor oh yeah i've had mentors in certain realms but uh where i've failed was definitely lack of mentor for sure mm -hmm. but somehow how would you push for that networking because a lot i mean there's a lot of people who wants to be mentee than mentors available yeah well, you know, right now with, with the whole uh, in, internet, YouTube, online courses, it's a completely different uh, landscape. I think my mentora could have been from investing money in quality tutorials. I mean, you can do a bunch of tutorials on YouTube, but the second you pay for them, there's quality there. So 
you know, if you have a hard time going out and getting a, a mentor and getting somebody to invest in you, you should invest in schooling or tutorials or whatnot. They're, they're out there, you know, mm -hmm. dig in, go deep. And go I think it's not deep. necessarily related to going to a school. It's like you could get your education from pretty much anywhere and a mentor. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. I said schooling, but essentially school will give you a certain direction. But sometimes it's, it's you want to go into something that's not taught in school or you need to, to go on the outskirts because school is too much in, in a direct lane. Right. You have you have a little vision there. You need to you need to go and you know who's invested in that direction also, you know. Yeah, that's what um, I mean. Hence the first question of who inspired you to go into music when none of your family members have been into it. Yeah, Pink so Floyd. It's hard. <laughs> Pink Floyd. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's important to know what you want. It's also important to have examples of people who failed in front of you. So you're not repeating the same mistakes or you're not losing too much time trial and error. Yeah. Very valuable advice. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. I hope you come back for another episode. Yeah, I should. I should. Okay, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Education Monsters. I hope you liked it. If you'd like to take a French lesson with me, don't hesitate to go on the Education Monsters website to book a class. I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please, please, please consider making a donation to my Patreon account. This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.